All right, well, good evening, good morning, good afternoon, wherever you're joining us from. We are just glad that you are here to worship with us. And uh, I do just wanna say how great it is that we can worship as one body, whether we're here, whether you're watching online Sunday morning, uh, we are one body and we are all worshiping together. All of our praises are going to our Lord and Savior. And so uh, it's just a privilege to be here. My name is Russ Allen. Uh, most of you probably recognize me. I was the box drum player during quarantine for the band. Uh, lesser known as the director of senior high ministry here at West Shore. And I am just really excited. It is such a privilege to be able to share God's word with you all here and you all at home. And it's such a privilege for all of us to be able to share God's word, amen? Anytime we have the opportunity. Um, you know, I think back when I was 17 years old, I, that was the first time I came to West Shore. And I remember I came with my parents and I was sitting back in the upper row back there and didn't know much about theology, uh, didn't know what theology was. Um, I had a solid faith, um, but I for sure never thought that I would be a pastor. But here I am today, so uh, God is good and God is faithful, amen? Yeah, amen. Well, um, if you guys have your Bibles, you can turn to 1 Corinthians chapter, chapter 13. And as you guys turn there, just wanna remind us a little bit of the context for 1 Corinthians 13. So the Apostle Paul is writing to the Corinthian church and he is emphasizing to them that the true marker of Christian maturity is love, is love. It's not knowledge, it's not gifts or talents, it's not status, but it's love. And so he says here in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, says, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I'm nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for those words about what love is. God, we know that we are called to love one another. Father, forgive us for the times that we think our gifts or our talents or our knowledge are what gain us a status with you. God, we know that those things puff us up, Lord, but we know love builds up, Father. And so we pray today that you would teach us what it means to love. We pray this in your name, amen. So today we are going to continue our series in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 on the way of love. And we're gonna be focusing on that last phrase that I just read. 
And that's our main point for today. That's one of the nice things about this series. You don't have to get too creative with what the main point is, right? So the main point is love does not insist on its own way. Love does not insist on its own way. And we see uh, just from glancing at this, that this comes about halfway through the chapter and it's right in the middle of where Paul is describing what love is and what love is not, right? He's, he's giving us a three-dimensional picture of love so that we can live it out. And it comes right after what Trent talked about last week, which was um, love is not arrogant or rude. And I think that there's a reason for that. It's because it's tied together, right? And that's simply because arrogant people insist on their own way, don't they? And so you're gonna see a lot of similarities um, or a lot of overlap between this sermon and the one that Trent preached last week. But I do believe that this is going to kind of round out that idea for us. It's gonna give us a fuller picture of what love is not and therefore we know what love is. So if you have other translations, um, the, the ESV says that love does not insist on its own way. Maybe you have another translation, something, some translations might say that love is not selfish or love is not self-seeking. Uh, and the Greek word that's used here uh, is the word for seek, okay? And, and whenever this is used elsewhere in the New Testament, we get this idea of someone seeking after something relentlessly, okay? Like, um, like the shepherd seeking after the sheep who was lost and leaving the 99 behind and looking after it. Right? Or, or the woman looking after the coin. So we get this idea of this relentless pursuit of something. But here, it's applied to yourself. And so, therefore, we get this idea of relentlessly pursuing things for yourself, insisting on your own way. And basically what that means when he says it here is that love does not narcissistically fixate on oneself and one's own advantage. That's what Paul is talking about here in 1 Corinthians 13. And so today we're gonna answer two questions. And by the way, these are two questions that if maybe you're new to Christianity or you're just starting to, to figure out how to read the Bible, these are two questions that you can always ask yourself anytime you read the Bible, okay? And we're gonna answer them for this text today. And the first one, is why does the author make this statement? Okay, why does Paul include not insisting on your own way as part of love? Why does he include that here? And then the second question is how should we respond to it? And so again, the first question, how does, or excuse me, why does Paul make this statement? Why does Paul make this statement? The first reason, there's two reasons. The first reason that I believe that Paul makes this statement is because he recognizes that selfishness rejects the good of others and therefore it is the opposite of love. So selfishness rejects the good of others and is the opposite of love. And we can even think about that logically, right? If you are turning your attention to yourself, if you're seeking after something, relentlessly, you are by nature turning your attention away from everyone else, right? And in doing that, 
it forces other people to adjust to you and what you want and not vice versa. As Donald Whitney notes, he says, it's when we begin to consider ourselves and our rights as more important than others and their needs. And we get an idea that this is what Paul is talking about in uh, a few chapters earlier. If you go to 1 Corinthians 10, you don't have to turn there right now, but, but Paul gives us some background, likely, to what he's referring to here in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Um, in chapter 10, verse 24, he says, let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor, right? We see the same language used there. Now this comes in the context of whether it's okay for Christians to eat meat uh, offered, that has been offered to idols, right? That has been sacrificed to idols. Um, and without getting into the weeds of this too much, these people, these Christians, were basically shouting, they were saying, but we're allowed to do this. We're allowed to do this, this is our right. And, and Paul gives a gentle rebuke and he says, but it's not beneficial to others. And I think that maybe sometimes we say that to ourselves, maybe not out loud, but in our heads, there are things in our life that we say, I have a right to this, I'm allowed to do this. And so I just pray that maybe we would hear the gentle rebuke of Paul who might be saying to you, but is it beneficial to others? Is it beneficial to others? And so what we learn is that we must wisely consider our actions, even if we have a right to them, and whether or not they have a de detrimental effect on other people, especially our brothers and sisters in Christ. See, Paul understood that selfishness pollutes love. It ruins relationships and it destroys unity. We see that echoed in James chapter three, verse 16. He says, for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. There will be disorder. And so we have a little illustration to help us understand this point. So um, I'm gonna ask my fiance, Lauren, to come on up here. We can't social distance. I was gonna get someone from the audience, but this uh, demonstration um, does not <laughs> allow for social distancing. Um, so if you guys think about relationships, okay? Relationships um, are like being tied to someone else, right? It doesn't have to be a romantic relationship. It can be a friendship, uh, family relationship. Um, but we see that played out probably in, in the um, ultimate sense, uh, at least from an earthly perspective, in marriage, right? But this is just gonna represent any kind of relationship. So kids, if you're watching, uh, you can grab a sibling, you can try this at home. Uh, if you don't have a sibling, grab one of your parents. I'm sure they'd love to do this with you. Um, so here we go. We're gonna, we're gonna tie our legs together here, or tie our ankles together. Uh, if you're at home, you can use like a uh, bandana or something like that, all right? So this is a relationship, all right? Now, the closer your relationship is, the closer you're gonna be tied together, all right? Now, if you think about this, what happens if you insist on your own way, right? Right? You are going to, one of two things will happen, all right? One is you're going to drag the other person along with you, and as a result, you're gonna create a lot of friction 
in your relationship, right? <laughs> yeah, you're, you're gonna hurt the relationships that you're in, okay? Now, the second thing that could happen is this. You could just undo the bond altogether and insist on your own way. And let me tell you, you may get what you want, but what do you really have, right? What do you really have? Loneliness. See, the Bible says that that's kind of like, it's a glimpse of hell, is when you continue to insist on your own way and seek after yourself, and hell is doing that for all of eternity, and you end up alone and in the dark. And we see this in our relationships even today, right? Uh, with family members who maybe insist on their own way and they break ties with their family or in marriages that end in divorce. But the alternative is to be in relationship with each other. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, the chapter right before the one we're looking at, Paul says that as Christians, we are actually one body with each other. That as the church, we are actually in relationship with each other. And so your actions are not unconsequential to everyone else in the body. And so what we have to do is we have to learn how to walk in step with each other. We have to learn how to submit to one another and, and build each other up and understand the other person's needs. And so what happens when you do that? We're gonna try this out. So kids at home, try this out. Okay, there you go. So that's good. We won't go too far. <laughs> we actually want this demonstration to work. But so, so what happens is it's, it's not easy at first, but you can see that it becomes easier as you walk and as you practice it right? Because you begin to understand the other person better. And so that's what it looks like to actually not insist on your own way and to love the other person well. All right. So Lauren, you did a great job. Thank you. You can have a seat. Give her a round of applause. <clears throat> but I think that demonstrates the point, right? So selfishness, insisting on your own way, rejects the good of others. It damages relationships. And it's the opposite of love. And that's why Paul mentions that here. The second reason that he mentions it is that selfishness comes naturally, but love does not. Selfishness comes naturally, but selfless love does not. Isaiah 53, 6 says, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And we'll talk about that last part in a little bit, but I want us to focus on where it says, everyone has turned to his own way, his own desires. Tim Keller once wrote that we are so instinctively and profoundly self-centered that we don't think we are. That's scary. See, not insisting on your own way is incredibly hard to do. Why? Because it's at the core of our sinful human nature. It was at the heart 
of the very first sin in all of human history and it has seeped down into humanity as a whole. We were not and are not satisfied with submission to God's will and to each other, but instead seek status and knowledge that comes at the expense of our relationship with God and with other people. I read an article from a few years ago that talks about Burger King's slogan. How many of you guys know what Burger King's slogan is? Anybody? Some of you? It's have it your way, right? Have it your way, how appropriate for what we're talking about. But this section from the article was a little bit revealing. It says, Burger King unveiled a new slogan, be your way, along with a marketing campaign targeted at the millennial generation. While the new tagline is similar to the brand's longstanding iconic have it your way slogan, experts say it reflects a new focus. Now listen to this. It reflects a new focus on customers' way of life rather than the chain's food and service. So insisting on our own way, selfishness is part of our culture. It's part of our society. We no longer ask ourselves the question, what can I give to a relationship or give to society? Instead, we ask the question, how much can society or our relationships give to me, right? And, and if the return isn't greater to or equal, isn't equal to or greater than the cost, we just walk away from it. But see, the problem isn't just our interactions with society, it's also very personal. Self-centeredness is at the heart of divorce and marital discontentment. Studies show that when one spouse acts in a self-centered way, the other spouse almost always responds in a self-centered way. And we see how that cycle can be so detrimental to relationships even precious relationships. What's crazy is that even when we know we're wrong, we still insist that we're right. We try to justify ourselves. You guys have maybe been in an argument with someone who it's pretty clear that the other person is wrong and they know that they're wrong, but they still continue to argue and insist that they're right. right? I was kind of like this. I still am like that sometimes. But the point is that we try to twist our words and our rationale in order to justify ourselves and to, to make ourselves seem smart or knowledgeable. But we do it at the detriment of the other person. I tell my students all the time that it's possible to win an argument, but lose a person. It's possible to win an argument, but lose a person. Are we actually seeking understanding or are we just seeking to be right? But here's what's even scarier. You can do almost anything, even good things, from selfish ambition. Paul says in, in Philippians 1 that you can even preach the gospel from selfish ambition. And, and that is a sobering thought, especially as someone who is standing up here right now. But it should make all of us check our hearts. See, we are selfish at our core from crying infants to whiny children to defiant teens to overconfident adults 
to stubbornness in old age, selfishness, and insisting on our own way follows us throughout our lifetime. So how should we respond? How should we respond? That's the second question. Psychological studies show that people who have the hardest time loving other people, people who maybe have a a, a tough exterior or they may even be abusive in relationships, it's because they were never loved when they were younger. And that gives us a really interesting principle. The love you know is the love you show, right? The love you know is the love you show. And I don't mean that just in a purely intellectual sense. I mean that in an experiential sense. You know it, you've felt it, you've experienced it. And therefore, you can show it. So how should we respond? There's only one answer, and that is look to the cross. Look to the cross. One way that we look to the cross, we look to Jesus' example on the cross. First, first John 3, 16 says, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. See, the Bible, you can sum it up as a story of two gardens. The first garden was Adam in the Garden of Eden, and he had all of life set before him. But he chose to insist on his own way, to seek after his own desires, to make himself greater, And then we have the second garden, Garden of Gethsemane with Jesus, and he had death set before him. And he said, not my will, but yours be done. The story of two gardens. I wanna read Philippians 2, verses three through eight to you, and as I read this, just want you to soak it in. This is the word of God. It says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Let each, or, excuse me, have this in mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. See, I wanna make this point It's important for us to understand when we talk about Jesus and his selfless love. Jesus was not humbled by the cross. He humbled himself for the cross. And that's a really important distinction 
because society will tell you that Jesus' death was just like every other martyr. And if it was, then it cannot be the supreme example of selfless love for us. But his death was not like that of every other martyr. It's far above that. See, martyrs are at the mercy of their killers. But Jesus is different. Jesus is different. See, the killers were always at the mercy of Jesus. Even while he hung on the cross. That's why on the cross he could say, Father, forgive them. That's not someone who is at the control of someone else. That's someone who's under his own control. His life was not taken, it was given. And therefore, he gives us the ultimate expression of love. No one else has ever done anything throughout history as loving as what Jesus did for us. Whenever the Bible speaks about love, it measures it primarily not by how much you want to receive, but by how much you are willing to give of yourself to others. So we look to Jesus and his example on the cross. But we don't only look to his example. We also have to look at the work accomplished through the cross. See, it's the actual power of the cross that can defeat our selfishness. And I believe it does this in a very profound sense. And if you're, you're here or you're listening and you haven't yet put your faith in Christ, I want you just to hear me out, okay? Perhaps some of you are thinking, it would be a whole lot easier for me to look to the interests of others if I could first attain what I need and what I want, right? And then when I'm good, then I'll be in a better place to help other people. And of course, that's actually true, but it's impossible to attain. See, there will always be the next ambition or the next desire because our human nature remains ultimately unsatisfied with earthly things. And if, even if you do happen to attain what you set out to, you will always have the fear of losing it. You work to gain your reputation or your status or your wealth, and you continue to work for the rest of your life just to maintain it. And religion, man-made religion, we'll call it, in the cultural sense, will not solve your problem either. See, the message of religion is do these things or follow these rules and gain a good life or eternity for yourself. But that leads to self-righteousness and self-satisfaction. This is why the good news of what Jesus did on the cross is the only true solution to our selfishness. And there is no other absolute cure. Hebrews 12.2 says that for the joy that was set before him, Jesus endured the cross, despising the shame, 
and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus told the criminal on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. See, Jesus knew that there was glory on the other side of the grave, that there was satisfaction after the suffering, that there was resurrection after death. And not just for him, but through him for all people. See, through the cross, Jesus reconciled us to God. We who were once far off, we were once enemies of God, but we are no longer. We did not earn it, but it is given to us simply by faith. Simply by faith. See, we can give all we have to others, emotionally, mentally, materially, because we have all that we need in Christ. Perhaps our natural inclination to insist on our own way is because we aren't truly satisfied and we're trying to gain that satisfaction for ourselves. But the power of the cross utterly defeats selfishness. Why justify yourself through crafty words and rationale? You've already been justified. What motive is there for you to gain status for yourself at the expense of others? You're already a child of God. What point is there in insisting on your own pleasure? Christ is our satisfaction. Why harm relationships to attain earthly riches? You have treasure in heaven. And all of this, not earned, but freely given. And it cannot be taken away from you. It's the only message out there that offers this to us. Nothing else can. We are free to give of ourselves to others because we have all that we need. So in conclusion, insisting on our own way rejects the good of others and it comes naturally to us. But the cross is our divine source of selfless love. Through Jesus' example and through the power of what he accomplished on it, giving us all that we need. We are free to love God and to love others, the two greatest commandments. Now all of this does not mean that we cannot or should not voice our opinion or make known our preferences. Certainly those are, those are necessary things and those are often good things. However, it does mean that we must primarily seek the benefit of other people by serving them and by building them up. And where there's disagreement, seek understanding. Don't seek to be right. Look to elevate others above yourself. And I think of a couple friends who do this so well. One friend is a guy who has a really difficult home life. And yet he is the most joyful guy that I've ever met. 
and he's always ready to serve me. Anytime that I ask for something, he's ready to do it. I have another friend who has stage four cancer and he has every reason to insist on his own way, to ask things from other people. But he's the first one to ask me how I'm doing even before I ask him how he's doing. So live radically for the good of other people. Live radically for the good of other people. And when you do that, you will stand out. You will stand out. And where we must insist, and there are times that we must insist, seek God's way and not your own, not my will, but yours be done. That is love, that is love. And I hope that that's your prayer today. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your word. Father, thank you for showing us what love is, for telling us what love is and what it is not. God, we know that selfishness and seeking our own way rejects the good of others and it comes so naturally to us, God. We see that in our lives. So Father, I pray that you would convict us of where we don't see it and help us to repent where we do. Thank you. Father, for the gospel message, for the power of the cross and what was accomplished on it, that we have been given everything that we need in Christ, God, so we can give all that we have to others. I pray that we would do that, God. Instill that in us. Lord, thank you that we can know what love is by looking to Jesus and his example and his selfless love. Father, and I pray that we would do that, not just now, but every single day, Father, and that we would love each other well, and that we would not insist on our own way, God, but that we would seek the good of those around us. Father, we love you. We pray all this in your name, amen.